welcome everyone. As uh, Gina and, and Luis both said, uh, Pastor Kevin is in California. He did a memorial service for Steve. And as Luis said, that there was one lady who accepted Christ. And just pray for her and the, the seeds that were planted. Uh, my name is David Graham. I'm one of the assistant pastors here. So um, this morning, we're going to be looking at the topic of prayer. And if you need a Bible, raise your hand and the ushers will get one to you. So you're going you're gonna to need it this morning. Fortunately, right? You came to the right place. So a couple weeks ago, I had lunch with Pastor Kevin, kind of shared some things. He's like, where are you in, you know, where are you in the Word? And I kind of told him, and he said, okay. So then the following Sunday, we had a regular meeting where we pray and what have you, and he let the guys know he's going to be out of town. And he said, well, David's going to do a, a teaching on prayer. And I was like, okay, I guess I'm apparently doing a teaching on prayer. So this morning, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 1. So 1 Samuel chapter 1. And if there's any visitors, we'd like to welcome you uh, to Calvary Chapel Clayton. One of the things that we, we, I guess we, one of our distinctives that we go verse by verse, line by line. And we'll be doing that this morning, but in a few different sections. But the first one will be in 1 Samuel chapter 1. And as you're turning there, I don't know if you heard about, there was these two guys that were kind of working in close quarters. It was hot. They started sweating. And they weren't smelling so great. And one of the guys turned to the other guy and said, you know what? One of our deodorants is not working. <laughs> and the other guy looks at the other one and says, well, it can't be mine because I don't wear any. <laughs> so, Pastor Kevin said that I needed to tell a joke. So that, I got that out of the way. So we're in 1 Samuel chapter 1. But as you're turning there, I'm actually going to read another verse that's kind of the basis of, of all the different sections we're going to go through this morning. That's found in James chapter 5, verse 16. At the end of the verse, it says, The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And so, you know, in, in co I guess common terms, that means that our will is aligned with God's will. Right? And it, then it avails much. It's very effective in that regard. So we're going to see that in the different sections we're going to go through this morning. The first one, again, is 1 Samuel chapter 1. And I'm going to read the first seven verses to kind of give us an idea of where we're going to be. And then as we go further along, we're going to dig a little bit deeper. So 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1 says, Now there was a certain man of Ramathathian Zophan. Another name for that area is Arimathea. You remember Joseph of Arimathea, the borrowed tomb of Christ of the mountains of Ephraim, and his name, name was Elkanah, which means God has possessed, the son of Jeroboam, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. And I'm going to stop right there just to let you know he's an Ephraimite because of the region where he is. He's actually from the, the tribe of, of Levi. And he had two wives, and we notice the, the order of his two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and that means grace, and the name of the other, Penaniah, which means jewel. So Penaniah had children, but Hannah had no children. This man went up from his city yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. So we see the heart of worship for Elkanah. Also the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priest of the Lord, were there. And whenever the time came for Elkanah to make an offering, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to her sons and daughters. Verse 5 is key. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion. For he loved Hannah, listen to this, although the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival also provoked or irritated her severely to make her miserable because the Lord had closed her womb. Second time we see that. 
So it was year by year when she went up to the house of the Lord that she provoked her. Therefore she wept and did not eat. So now as a background, we see this man is in the, in the hill country. He has two wives. One is, is barren, cannot have children, Hannah, which means grace. And then there's the other one that, that can have children. So they would go up year by year to Shiloh, which is about 15 miles north of where they're located. And he would give, give them offerings and he would give double to his wife for he loved Hannah more, more so, I assume, than, than Penaniah. And it says the Lord had closed her womb. So now we have the background of what's going on here. Look with me in verse 8. And it says, then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart grieved? Am I not better than, to you than ten sons? As a husband, you know, first reading that, I, I feel that at times as husbands, we don't really relate to our wives. I mean, that's just a, a word of wisdom, and I think we can all agree with that. And also in this, it's Hannah's trial. It's, it's her own individual situation. You know, Elkanah can't say, yeah, I know what you're going through, or even Penaniah, who was picking on her, irritating her, making fun of her, you know, kind of knew what she was going through because she had children, so she would, would harass her, but it was Hannah's individual trial. So as we go through this, you're going to see how that's applicable to us. Look, verse 9 through 11, let's look at that. And it says, So Hannah arose after they had finished eating and drinking, obviously the rest of the folks, because it said she wept and did not eat. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the tabernacle of the Lord, which was the normal seat there for the, the priest where they would sit. And she was in bitterness of soul. In other words, she's very sad, very sorrowful because of her situation. So what did she do? And she prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. That word literally means to flow in drops, to give you an idea of what this effect it had on her. Verse 11 says, Then she made a vow, or a promise, you could say, and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me, and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall come upon his head. So we, we look at the prayer, I guess you could say a wife's prayer, if you want to call this first section. Her prayer is that she made a vow to the Lord, saying, Lord, if you look on my affliction, right? And I think all of us can agree we, we go through things, afflictions in our life. If you remember and not forget, what did the Lord tell us? I will never leave you nor forsake you. And in her life, we see her praying to the Lord, if you do this and you give me a male, it, it, she says she'll turn around and give him to the Lord. Turn around and give to the Lord what she's been given. So in this, this first prayer, this example that we see of Hannah, it's, I guess, the question we can ask ourselves in our prayers, will the end result bring God glory? Is it a, a selfish prayer, you know, just to satisfy whatever need or whatever situation we're going through? Or will we look past that and say, Lord, I want this to glorify you and everything. There's a verse in John that I thought of, John 3:27. Jeff has it for us. It says, John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You know, anything that we have, the breath in our lungs, the chair that you're sitting on, the fact that you are alive right now, everything, you just go down the list. Everything that we have is because it is a gift. It's been given to us. And in here in the prayer of Hannah, it says, Lord, if you give me this gift, I'm going to turn around and re-gift it give it right back to you because it belongs to you. Look with me in the next set of verses, 12 through 18, it says, 
And it happened, as she continued praying before the Lord, that Eli watched her mouth. Now Hannah spoke in her heart, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli thought she was drunk. So Eli said to her, How long will you be drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered and said, No, my Lord, I am a woman of sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor intoxicating drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant a wicked woman, for out of the abundance of my complaint and the grief I have spoken until now. Look at this. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition which you have asked of him. Verse 18 says, And she said, Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went away, went her way, and ate, and her face was no longer sad. The beginning of that, verse 13, we notice where the, where the prayer originated. It says she spoke in her heart. Prayer originates in our heart, right? What does it say in the scripture? Out of the, out of the heart, the, the mouth, the abundance of the heart, it speaks. Proverbs 4.23, it says, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it springs the issues of life. This, this, this lady, Hannah, was just sorrowful, full of sorrow, because she could not have a child. And she poured her, out, her heart out to the Lord, and then we see Eli, who's acting on the, the mediator between the people and God, the priest at the time, tells her, go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition. And we see how that impacted her, how her time in prayer, her time with the priest in this particular situation, telling her her situation, the very last verse, last sentence of the verse, it says, so the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. So for us, same thing. When you're in, in God's word, in prayer, in fellowship, you're going to be totally different than when you're, you're isolated, you're not in his word, you're not asking him what the will is for your life. And we see how that impacted her. She went her way and ate. She hadn't, it says she didn't eat and she wept. In her face, the, the external, you know, as we spend time with the Lord, it should be evident we should have that fragrance of Christ. So look at verse 19 and 20. It tells us, Then they rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. So now we see Hannah is obviously part of that process. And it says, And returned and came near the house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah his wife. We're aware what that means. And the Lord remembered her. So it came to pass in the process of time that Hannah conceived and bore a son. And called his name Samuel, saying, Because I have asked for him from the Lord. The first thing we see is a family, a father, Elkanah, leading his family in worship early in the morning. It says they rose early in the morning and worship before the Lord. And you guys are here. You guys aren't real early because you're in the second service, but you're here <laughs> worshiping the Lord. And as the leader in the house, you know, Elkanah knew, knew what needed to be done. And we see how, again, how that time with the Lord in Hannah's life change and then they get back home and, and, and a husband and a wife join and, and the Lord remembered her. I want you to underline that it wasn't, if, if you notice in this, this section or even in these four sections we're going to look at, it wasn't until people prayed in the situation Hannah that the Lord acted and it was in this situation and, and others as we're going to go through there's specific prayers that were asked, uh, specificity if you want to get fancy of prayers and it says the Lord remembered her we see that phrase also in another time when Rachel if you remember Rachel and Jacob Jacob had to work seven years the uh, Laban pulled a fast one 
married Leah. Then he, then he had to work another seven for Rachel. Rachel was barren. She did not have children. Same situation as Hannah. Genesis 30, 22 tells us, then God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb. Same situation. So we see the Lord listening to Hannah here and she conceived and bore a son and called him Samuel, which can mean asked of God and it also can mean his name is God. So it's a good name if you're thinking about having a son, or going to have a son. So verses 21 through 23 tell us, now the man Elkanah in all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice in his vow. We see this continual worship in the life of Elkanah, leading his family. Verse 22 tells us, But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, Not until the child is weaned, then I will take him, that he may appear before the Lord and remain there forever. So Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what best seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only let the Lord establish his word. Then the woman stayed and nursed her son until she had weaned him. In verse 22, we said, <clears throat> we see where it says weaned. And that word literally means to ripen, like fruit, leaving the fruit on the tree or anything on a vine. And around uh, in that culture, in that time, is roughly three years of age. So you see the wisdom of a, a future mother, a, a mother now, saying, let me, let me wean him first. Let, me ri let him ripen, because she didn't want to just bring a, a month-old baby to Eli the priest and say, okay, now you need to change the diapers and teach him how to walk. Let us do that. So it says she did that until he was weaned, until was, he was able to serve the Lord. And look what it says that, that Hannah tells us, uh, her husband Elkanah. She says, not until he's weaned, but then look what happens. So there's that brief time they're going to have him. And then it says, going to appear before the Lord and remain there forever. So Elkanah's probably like, wait a minute, we, you wanted a son, we're going to have a son, and now he's going to remain, or the word it also means abide forever. I mean, that's sacrificial um, love, sacrificial everything you could think of as a husband and a wife for their son, their new son. So Elkanah says, tells her, well, whatever seems good, because obviously the, the weaning part makes sense, but I like the part where it says, only let the Lord establish his word. Some translations say, only let the Lord establish your word. Either way, the Lord's doing the establishing, and it means to, to confirm or fulfill a promise. And we know that in our lives, that the Lord will, will make do whatever needs to be done according to his will. Look at verse 24 through 28 with me. It says, Now when she had weaned him, when he's good and ripe, she took him up with her with three bulls, one ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh, and the child was young. Verse 25 says, Then they slaughtered a bull and brought the child to Eli the priest. And she said, Oh, my Lord, as, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood by here praying to the Lord. Remember, her mouth moving. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition, which I asked of him, a specific prayer. Therefore, I also have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord. So they worship the Lord there. And that lint, the word lint, is not like, okay, I'm going to lend Trevor my chainsaw. It's not. It literally means to, to give or to dedicate something to. So again, he's, she's, they brought Samuel there. And so now this, this, the Lord has answered my prayer. And now the reason for the prayer was to give God glory and to, and to serve the Lord. Something I was reminded of, obviously, the, the two parents here, Elkanah and Hannah, 
the fact that they had to give the child to the Lord at you know, roughly three years of age. Imagine there's anybody in the room with a kid at that age and we went to go pick him up and said, oh, we've got him now for, you're done. I mean, that would, probably wouldn't go well. But for the sacrifice of the parents here, I mean, think about their lives, that they, the wife has been through this for these years, has the child, and then gives back exactly what the Lord gave them. And it says, so they worship there. You know, we only have our children briefly, when I thought of that, that those in the room that have children, those that will have children, whatever your situation might be, the time goes quickly. So the time that you have ripening them, you know, weaning them, if you want to say in the word, is important. And it says, so they worship the Lord there, you know. Now they're, they're part of that process. Hannah is now part of that process, Elkanah and the rest of the family. I encourage you to, to continue reading in this particular section with Hannah's prayer. But I want you to look at chapter 2, verse 11. Because this was the ultimate outcome. I guess the ultimate prayer of Hannah was that, Lord, you give me a son. I'm going to give him back to you. Look at verse 11 in chapter 2 of 1 Samuel. It says, Then Elkanah went to his house at Ramah, but the child ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. He served the Lord. And that was, that was her ultimate prayer. It brought God glory, but it was also in service to the Lord. So we saw a wife's prayer and now obviously a mother's prayer. Now I want you to go to 2 Kings chapter 6. A few books over, not too far over. Again, this is a little different than normal. Typically we'll stay in one section and we'll go verse by verse, but Pastor Kevin said you need to do something on prayer, so... It's going to be beneficial for us. So 2 Kings chapter 6 is where we're going to be. And we're going to pick it up, <clears throat> 2 Kings chapter 6. Now I'm going to read verses 8 through 13, similar like I did in the other section, to give us a background of kind of what's going on here. So 2 Kings chapter 6 verse 8 says, Now the king of Syria was making war against Israel. And he consulted with his servant, saying, My camp will be in such and such a place. And the man of God sent to the king of Israel, saying, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are coming down there. Then the king of Israel sent someone to the place in which the man of God had told him. Thus he warned him, and he was watchful there, not just once or twice. Verse 11 tells us, Therefore the heart of the king of Syria was greatly troubled by this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me which one of you is for the king of Israel? You know, who's the traitor among us? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha. And his name means God is salvation, another good name for a child. The prophet who is in Israel tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. Wow. And so he said, Go and see where he is, that I may send and get him. And it was told him, saying, Surely he is in Dothan. So we see we got the background. We've got the Syrian king planning to take over Israel, um, coming in. Every time he would plan the place to go to, Elisha, God of salvation, would warn the king of Israel, say, go here, they're coming here, protect that area, and so forth and so on, until the word got back to the Syrians. There's this guy, this prophet, this man of God, that warns them every time. It's not us. And so the king of Syria, obviously in his lack of faith, is he, they've already told him that he, he's one step ahead of you and he knows. 
he, he's going to do something different here. So look in verse 14. He says, Therefore, the king of Syria sent horses and chariots and a great army there, and they came by night and surrounded the city. Again, the king of Syria did not listen to his servant saying, This guy's one step ahead of you. Do you not think he's going to know we're coming to the city? So they, he sent all a great army, and they surrounded the city for this one man, Elisha, God of salvation. Verse 15 tells us, And when the servant of the man of God, so Elisha's servant, arose early and went out. And we read earlier about Elkanah and his family rising early and worshiping. It says he arose early and went out, and there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots, just like we read in the previous verse. And a servant said to him, he said to Elisha, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So the first time reading through that, immediately went to, in, in Peter's sermon, and we have the verses up on the screen, and you'll see the reason why I'm going to this. So this is Acts chapter 2, verses 37 and 38. And this is Peter, after he was speaking, he was spreading the word. It says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Just like Elisha's prophet. Then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We're going to see how Elisha, God of salvation, through the story, the same thing. So we see the servant seeing the, the external situation and now trying to ask the man of God, his, I guess his, his master, so to speak, what are we going to do now? The external looks horrible here. And now we see wisdom in verse 16. And so he answered, or Elisha answered, and he said, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. So the first thing we see is do not fear, right? And that's all through Scripture, right? If God is for us, who can be against us? It tells us in Romans 8.31. And he tells them the reason that he shouldn't fear. He says, those who are with us are more than those who are with them. We see two different guys here. We see Elisha and his prophet. And a trial. There's a trial, right? They're, you've got, they're surrounded now by the Syrian army with chariots, great army, horses, all these things going on, bearing down on them. And I think the same can be said in our lives. We have trials. James is the one that says, count it all joy when you experience various trials, knowing that the testing or the proving of your of the faith will, be, will give you endurance or patience, and it'll have its perfect work so you may be complete and lacking nothing. And we're going to see that the Lord is using this situation for the servant of, of Elisha as well as Elisha, and you'll see what I'm talking about. Look in verse 17. It says, And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. You know, in the first section that we looked at, we looked at Hannah's specific prayer. If you will, you will not forget, you will look upon my affliction and give me a male child. I will give him to you. Here we see Elisha's specific prayer. Open the eyes of my servant that he may see. And what happened? It says, then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man. So 
It wasn't until prayer, and the whole purpose of, of this section that we're looking at is why, why even pray? You might have heard that before. Well, God's going to do whatever he's going to do. Why do I need to pray? Um, well, I guess the only thing we can do now is pray. You've probably heard that before as well. When in fact, throughout Scripture, the Lord did not move until prayer. And I want to encourage you guys with that as well. And it says here, he opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And what did he see? The mountain full of horses and chariots of fire. So you've got the human element of the, the horses and the chariots of the, the king of Syria. And now you have the spiritual side of things. It's full of fire and chariots and horses. Psalm 68, 17 tells us, The chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of thousands. The Lord is among them, as in Sinai, in the holy place. Now, as, as you probably heard it said, if we could just see the curtain pulled back and see the warfare that's continually going on around us, the spiritual warfare, we would be surprised. Now, Elisha, this man of God, God of salvation, is familiar with this horses and chariots of fire. And his predecessor, Elijah, which means my God is Jehovah, he was taken up, taken away in his chariots of fire. Look in 2 Kings 2.11 tells us, then it happened as they continued on and talked. This was Elijah and Elisha that suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire and separated the two of them. And Elijah, who means God of salvation, or God is Jehovah rather, went up by a whirlwind into heaven. So Elisha is all too familiar with this, the stuff that the Lord does. He knows. He's seen it. And now that he, he tells the young man, because he can see it, now he tells the young man, or he, he prays to the Lord to open the eyes of the young man, look what's surrounding us. Surrounding, the people are here, but look what's even more so. There's more of them than, than us. More of us than them, rather. So look what happens in verse 18. So we've got the people and their chariots. We've got the fire and their chariots and the horses. So one would assume that the Lord's going to send his horses of fire and chariots and smoke the Syrians. But verse 18 tells otherwise. It says, so when the Syrians came down to him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Strike this people, I pray, with blindness. And he struck them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. Now we see the second specific prayer of Elisha. First it was open the eyes of my servant. Now it's close the eyes of the enemy and strike them with blindness. And it says again, and he struck them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. It wasn't until prayer. You know, Elisha could have prayed, you know, bring your horses and wipe them out. But he didn't. There was that, the heart of Elisha, the, the heart of God in him, the prophet. Look at verse 19 with me. It says, now Elisha said to them, this is the Syrian army that's now blind or partially blind or whatever it might be. This is not the way, nor is this the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. But he led them to Samaria. So now we find out the reason why did he blind them. So he could then take them to Samaria. What's Samaria? Well, you've got the kingdom is divided now. You've got Israel in the north, Judah in the south. And the capital of the northern kingdom where we're located here is Samaria. So he's going to take the, the, the Syrian army, follow him to the, to the capital where all the soldiers are located. So there's a specific prayer. And once again, the Lord answered. Look at verse 20. So it was when they had come to Samaria that Elisha said in his third specific prayer, Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. 
And the Lord opened their eyes and they saw. And they were there inside Samaria. I like the explanation mark, at least in my Bible. And there they were. You know, they're, they're like, uh-oh. They're inside the capital city. I'm sure there's guards all around them. And now we see this third prayer to open their eyes. And as we look through the, the three instances here, the servant to open the eyes to see the spiritual world, and then the enemy, the literal blindness, and then the literal opening of the, the, the eyes, we see both a physical and a spiritual sense in the situation. And the fact that we're obviously living in this world, we're passing through this world, we're sojourners, it tells us, to be light and salt into the world. And I thought of Paul's ministry when I, when I read this, where he recounts what the Lord told him, that, Paul, you're going to go to the Gentiles. In Acts 26, 18, it tells us to open their eyes, the Gentiles. Why? In order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That's all of us in the room that have accepted Christ. We have that inheritance. And our, we have turned from darkness to light. We've accepted the Lord as our Savior. The Holy Spirit is in us, guiding us. That was Paul's job, and that's the same thing for us, you know, to, to be the salt and the light. The only problem is there's an enemy that desires the opposite of that. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 tells us, and this is referring to Satan and his crew, whose minds the God of this age is blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. So we see even in this, you know, situation with Elisha and, and the Syrian army, this physical, you know, I guess you could say spiritual warfare in, in the fact that God answered prayers. Look at the outcome here. Verses 21 through 23 tells us, Now when the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I kill him? Shall I kill him? Not only kill him once, double kill him. <laughs> and it, look at Elisha. But Elisha, God of salvation, said, You shall not kill him. Would you kill those whom you have taken captive with your sword and your bow? Set food and water before them, that they may eat and drink and go there to their master. Then he, the king of Israel, prepared a great feast for them. And after they ate and drank, he sent them away, and they went to their master. And that last sentence is amazing. So the bands of Syrian raiders came no more into the land of Israel. So I think we see through those verses, the heart of God um, established in, in the actions of Elisha. Because Elisha could have simply said, yes, king of Israel, smote these guys, get rid of them, uh, you know, you got them now, whatever it might be. But I think we see, as we know through scripture, God desires all men to be saved. And I have to wonder, and we'll be able to, to have this question answered, at least me, if there's any of these Syrian raiders, how they were impacted by Elisha's prayers. Because imagine these guys are coming in to, to get this man of God, Elisha. They got struck with blindness. They get led to this place and they open up and, then, and the enemy's all around them. And normally, you know, in, in war, they would get killed, but they give them food and drink and send them on their way. Proverbs 25, 21 and 22 tell us, If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For so you will heap coals of fire on his head, and the Lord will reward you. 
So how are others impacted by our prayers? We see Elisha's prayers with a servant, the Syrian army, and the ultimate outcome. But, you know, through this section, how, how do we view those we consider maybe our enemy? What does the Lord tell us to do? Love our enemies, pray for the enemies as he desires all men to be saved. There might be someone in your life that would be considered your enemy, but, you know, what, what does God want you to do? And is your heart right in praying for them? Like Elisha here, he, there were specific prayers. So we saw the prayer of a mother, or a wife, then mother. Then we saw a prayer of a, a prophet of God. Now turn with me to the, the New Testament, Acts chapter 12. I told you you're going to use your Bibles today. And if you're not turning, we have you on camera, and we have retinal scans that can determine... <laughs> So as we go, this is the third of four sections. <clears throat> and I wanna, I'm going to share something with you that the Lord kind of showed me going through these sections as well. It was pretty neat a few days ago. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 12. And just like with the other sections, I'm going to read the first four verses just to set the background so we kind of know what's going on here. So Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 4 tell us, Now about that time Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. And then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. So when he had arrested him, Peter, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him intending to bring him before the people after Passover. So we see the, exactly the situation. The church is under, obviously, stress. They're going through a trial. One of their brothers, the three that the Lord, uh, quite often, Peter, James, and John. James, the brother of John, was killed by the sword. And now they're, the other one, Peter, they grabbed him and threw him in prison. So we have the background, and we see the time frame. It says during the days of unleavened bread, which is right after the Passover, during the spiritual, uh, one of the feasts. Look at verses 5 and 6. It says, Peter was therefore kept in prison, but underline this in your Bible, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. We're going to look at the church's prayer now. And when Herod was about to bring him out, that night, Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers, and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Some word to focus in on. It wasn't just frequent, infrequent prayer. It says constant, and that, that means to earnestly pray. And it was by the church. It was through the, the body of believers. You know, James is already killed by the sword. <clears throat> I would imagine in their prayer of specificity. Their specific prayer was, Lord, spare our brother Peter. James has already died. They've already killed him. And pray for his deliverance. This constant prayer, 1 Thessalonians 5, 17 rather, says pray without ceasing. Now that's pretty much all the time. As we, we go through this, we know we're in this spiritual warfare. And in Ephesians, when we went through Ephesians, the armor of God is what we looked at. Ephesians 6.18 tells us 
praying always, just like the church here was praying constant, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all per perseverance and supplication for all the saints. So we see prayer always for other people, the other saints, the other believers. And we notice that King Herod, it wasn't just throw Peter in prison. It says they delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him in the and he's in, in chains between two soldiers. There's one at the door. There's, it's constantly being guarded. If you look back through the book of Acts, in chapter 5, the, an angel opened the, the, the doors of the prison and the apostles were freed. So I'd imagine there's probably something written in the prison log. When these guys come in, you make sure we got enough guys. You know, the stone that was rolled away, we, you know, they got this notebook of things that have happened to try to do their best to go against the Lord. Verse 7 tells us, now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, stood by Peter, and a light shone in the prison. And he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly, and his chains fell off. So we got Peter, as we know through Scripture, when he gets the opportunity to sleep, he's going to sleep. And this is another one of those. And it, and it takes here the angel of the Lord, that the light shone in the prison. He struck Peter on the side, and what does he tell him? Let's dilly-dally. No, he says, Arise quickly. And so when I read that, I thought of, you know, when we're prompted by the Holy Spirit and you're reading God's Word, you're in prayer, you're in fellowship, and the Spirit might say, you know, talk to this person, ask for forgiveness of this person, tell this person about the Lord, whatever it might be that the Lord shows you, we don't need to, to wait. Here it says, he arise quickly, address it right at that time. In Hebrews 1.14, it tells us a little bit about the, the role of angels. It says, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister or to serve for those who will inherit salvation? That's you and I. You know, they're, they're sent, and we see in this particular situation in Peter's case. Arise quickly, and his chains fell off. Look at verses 8 through 10, it says, Then the angel said to him, <clears throat> Gird yourself and tie on your sandals, and so he did. And he said to him, Put on your garment and follow me. So he went out and followed him, and did not know that what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they were past the first and second guard posts, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. And they went out and went down one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. So we see what the angel did. He woke Peter up. He told him, stand up, arise quickly. Then he tells him, gird yourself put on your sandals and put on your garment and follow me. So when I read that, I thought, yeah, that, that makes sense. You know, fortunately, all, all you guys girded yourself. You, you put clothes on. We took a shower to come here. So there's a practical side of this situation, not only for Peter in our own lives, you know, this week, whatever you might, whether you go to work tomorrow or what, whatever you're doing, you're going you're gonna to get up in the morning, you know, get things ready. You're not going to leave the house nude. You know, you're going you're gonna to put things on. But from a spiritual sense, um, I talked about the, the whole armor of God and the things in Ephesians. And I found these verses helpful in this. Ephesians 6, 14 and 15. It says, stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth. And truth is, is what, what you're holding in your hands. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness we, we read earlier in about James the righteous person the one who is just equal with God having shod your feet put on put on the, your shoes 
with the preparation of the gospel of peace. You know, we're in this, this constant warfare, but in the mornings, you know, go to the word. And, and then in 15, we just read, on your feet, put on the preparation of the gospel of peace. Be ready to tell someone about the Lord. Don't just um, go throughout the day and not looking for those opportunities to evangelize. And it says what happened here is he, he did what the angel said. He put on his sandals. He girded himself. He put on his garment. And he followed him. And then he, he wasn't sure if he was in a, seeing a vision. And he leads him past. And look what it says. What, and he went past the first and second guard posts. And it came to this iron gate. And it opened on its own accord. Interesting, as you go through scripture, iron is a representation of strength. You know, and there might be, and you know, if you want to relate it to us, there might be some, something in your life that the world, the world would have closed, whereas the Father can open. You know, with God, all things are possible. Something to you that might be so hard to overcome um, that he can open, that he can make a way. We also read, uh, as we're going through Revelation, Pastor Kevin, we already passed it, but Revelation 2.27 says that one day he's going to, God will rule with an iron rod. That, that's a symbol of strength. So he goes out the city. They go down one street, go down the next, and then boom, the angel, angels disappeared on him. Verse 11, see what happens with Peter. And it says, when Peter had come to himself, and he realizes what, what in the world happened, he says, now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. You know, there's this realization now. He's come to himself. He's, he's realized that the Lord has saved him. And what I thought of when I read this as, as sometimes for us, it's hard to understand how the Lord works. We know his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than ours. And the fact that James, you know, one of the, the main guys here is in glory with God. And Peter, he, his life was spared. And I know at times, especially during funerals, you know, you, you wonder, Lord, why did you take this individual? Why did this person go to glory? And why, you know, why? You ask the question. And it, as we go through this account, we understand that, you know, James' time on earth was finished in regards to glory and, and to serving the Lord, whereas Peter had more to do. And I think sometimes for us to get a grip on that, to understand that the Lord still had work in Peter's life to accomplish. So look at verses 12 through 17. And so when Peter, when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark. So John Mark, you can underline this in your Bible, where many were gathered together praying. You know, we read earlier that the church was in constant prayer for Peter. You know, Peter saw the answered prayer because he was released. But they don't know that the prayer has been answered yet. Verse 13 tells us, And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda, which means Rose, came to answer. And when she recognized Peter's voice because of her gladness, she did not open the gate, but ran and announced that Peter stood before the gate. But they said to her, You're beside yourself. Yet she kept insisting it was so. So they said, It is his angel. 16 tells us, now Peter continued knocking, and when they, I guess, finally opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Verse 17 says, but motioning to them with his hand to keep silent, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, and he said, go tell these things to James, not, not James that was killed, obviously, James, the half-brother of Jesus, and to the brethren, and he departed and went to another place. You notice in the beginning of that, it says, 
when he had considered this. And that means to, to understand, to perceive, to comprehend what, hap what just happened. And I think for us, you know, when we're in God's word, we're in, in time in his word and we ask him, Lord, what does this mean? Explain to me what this means. Point me to scripture. I mean, and we consider this. We understand when he shows us those things. And he goes through this account of what happened. But we notice that they were astonished. And it literally means to be amazed or to throw out of position, if a literal translation. And I think for us, for us not to be astonished. I mean, they, they were in constant prayer for Peter. And then they, were, they continued praying. And then they saw him. And then it was like, oh, Jesus, the Lord did answer a prayer. Wow. So for us, you know, with the expectation of answered prayer. Now, again, not that I'm going to pray this. And the Lord, you have to answer it this way. Nor the Lord will perform his will. And when our will is aligned with his. But the fact that we need to be in anticipation of answered prayer. Not to ask. James tells us not to ask in one who doesn't have faith. Like a, a wind, a sea wave that's tossed back and forth. But to, to genuinely know that the Lord will answer. And he tells them in verse 17. He tells them first to be quiet. But then he says, I know how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. He brought him out. He let him out. Romans 8.14. This is us this week. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Romans 8.14. Okay, Peter still had work to do. So did these other disciples that were gathered there. So the fourth section, I want you to flip to Luke chapter 22. It's the last section. So the first one we saw was Hannah. A, a wife and then to be a mother. And then we saw a man of God, a prophet. And then we saw the church. And when I... Uh, saw that when I was going through this in the study I realized that's almost like a, a microcosm a, an example of what's in this room I'm sure there's people in this room that are going through a whatever prognosis and they're praying for a specific thing you know the man of God in this situation you want to use that example with Pastor Kevin what's he praying for then church as we're here together as we have corporate prayer, prayer how we pray what we're praying for and then this, this last example, we're going to see the example of Christ, but also how it relates to us and how we need to pray. So Luke 22, verse 39 tells us, Coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives, as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. So this was, we're familiar with this account. This was after the upper room, he initiated the Lord's Supper. He's on his way with his disciples. One account says they sang hymns. So now he's at the, at the Mount of Olives, and it says he was accustomed. It was his habit to go and pray with the Lord, to be with the Lord one-on-one. And so he's, he's trying to go there to be with the Lord, to talk to his father. And we notice the disciples followed him because they had, they had that wanting to be with Christ, the desire to be close to Christ. And I think we can, in the same regard, be with Christ when we're in his word, when we're praying to him. Verse 40, look what it says. It says, when he came to the place, he said to them, his disciples were with him, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And we see a specific prayer here. Christ's prayer is for them to pray this. And it says you may not enter. And it literally means to give into to temptation, to succumb to temptation. 
And even Christ, knowing what he was getting ready to go through, his heart was for the believers, for the disciples there. And we know that when we're in his word, when we're in fellowship, when we're in communion with the Lord, with light, darkness cannot be there. You know, when we're in communion with him, we cannot be sinning. And I think that's the, what we can glean from this is that, you know, as long as we're praying, we're praying constantly, we're talking to him throughout the day, asking for guidance. We won't enter into temptation. He always makes a way out for us. And we notice what he says. He says, pray that you may not enter. And you can put your name there. Pray that, you know, your name may not enter, succumb to, give into. It's a personal thing. Look at verses 41 and 42. It says, and he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And we've heard these before. We notice he withdrew from them, you know, from the hustle and bustle for us. Do we withdraw? Do we withdraw and pray? Personal time with the Lord. In Christ's specific prayer, first off was that the Lord's will be done. His second specific prayer was to take this cup or the, God's wrath of judgment. And then he follows it up with, nevertheless, let your will be done, if that's your will, to take the cup away. So for us, again, when we're praying for something, no matter what it is, we need to come to him saying, Lord, I want to make sure that I'm aligned up in, with your will so that the uh, effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. It has to be in line with God's will. You know, for us, obviously, for him, it was taking this cup away, the God's judgment, going to the cross. And so when we pray, Lord, take whatever it is away from me and sometimes he doesn't do that sometimes he doesn't take whatever it is away from you that's causing problems second corinthians 12 8 through 9 you're familiar with these verses this is when paul is having a discussion with the lord and he kind of writes it out for us he says concerning this thing i pleaded with the lord three times that it might depart from me you know take this away from me and he said to me my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength, my dynamis, my dynamite is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmities that the power, the dynamis of God, of Christ, may rest upon me. In, in Paul's situation, and I, and I think a lot of us too, this weakness, it, it relates to a sickness, an infirmity, whatever physically you're going through. I were to ask everybody, raise your hand if you got something physical wise you got a bad back back knee back whatever right it would and a lot of times he won't take these things away from you because it's going to bring him glory down the road because we see it in you know in our weakness he's made strong we saw that in in paul's life and we see this in christ when he says take this away verse 43 we, we're going to see the first answered prayer it says, then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And this, this was a, not a, some kind of superficial strengthening. This was a deep strengthening. You can see, even when, when Christ was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted, it says when the, Satan left him, that the angels came and ministered to him. Same type of thing. They served him. They strengthened him. Hebrews 5, 7 gives us an idea how this was, how this particular moment in the garden Hebrews 5 7 says 
who in the days of his flesh, meaning Christ, when he offered up prayers of supplication, this tells us how it was in the garden, with vehement cries and tears to him who is able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. Obviously God was able to have that cup pass away from him, but it wasn't the case. We wouldn't be here and be saved. So the first answered prayer was the fact that it was God's will for him to go to the cross. In order for him to go to the cross, he needed strength from the angels. So the first answered prayer was that he was preparing the son by way of physically being strengthened by the angels. So there was an answered prayer in that. Verse 44 tells us, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground, agony. And that literally means struggling for victory, like wrestling. You know, there's a battle even to pray. Um, I think we could say at the end of the day, yeah, I prayed enough. I don't think any of us can say that. Did I talk to you enough throughout the day? Lord, no, I didn't. And the enemy desires for us not to pray, obviously. And so the, the battle that we don't wrestle against is not flesh and blood, but put on the whole armor. 45 and 46 tells us, when he rose up from prayer, and he had come to his disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow, and then he said to them, Why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter in temptation. Again, the heart of Christ was for his disciples. Continue praying that you will not give in to temptation. The end of 46, this is the second answered prayer. And it says, While he was still speaking, behold, a multitude, and he who was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them, and drew near to kiss Jesus, drew near to Jesus to kiss him. So the, the second answer prayer, you know, Christ said, if your will be done. And the first was, I'm going to strengthen you through this process. And the second one, my will is that you go to the cross. And so the betrayer immediately came. And it says immediately in Mark, why he was still speaking. And the worship team can come on, on up. So through these four different accounts that we looked at. We looked at Hannah, uh, the wife, and then mother, the Elisha, the prophet. We looked at the church praying. Then, then we looked at Christ praying and how it is agony and, and struggle for us as well. But something I did not touch on that I want to end on one verse is it something that needs to be in place for even any of this to even happen for us to be able to come boldly to the throne of grace and the help in time of need is, is our heart. How is our heart through the process? And the one verse that, that we're going to show on the screen is Psalm sixty-six, eighteen, And it's key through this whole process. It says, if I regard iniquity or wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. So whatever you're going through, whatever prayers that you're going to be talking to the Lord about, come to him with, with, with a clean heart or, Lord, remove the things that are going to interfere with my relationship with you. Um, we're going to have some folks, a couple in the back to pray, <clears throat> a man from the men's ministry and a lady from the women's ministry. If you need to pray about anything, to thank the Lord for something he's done, wisdom, guidance, whatever it might be, we encourage you to do that. And let's go ahead and pray as we, as we end. Father, we, we thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you for your faithfulness to us, you and when we're, we're not faithful to you, Lord. And as we read about your heart and how wonderful you are to us and show us so much grace and mercy, Lord. 
Father, I pray for those in this room, Lord, that, that are going through a trial, Lord, and I pray for them, Lord, this week, Lord, as they remain close to you, Lord, in their time of prayer, their time of worship in your word, Lord, that you cover them, that you pour into them, Lord. Thank you for being so wonderful to us, a loving Father, Lord. We lift this worship up to you, Lord, and our fellowship afterwards, Lord. Be with us this upcoming week. Strengthen us, Lord. I pray for our pastor and his family for a safe trip back home. We thank you for the good news of, out there of salvation, Lord. We thank you, Lord. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Mm-hmm.